Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to two places, Galatians chapter 4, mark your place there, and then make your way to Psalm 107. Galatians chapter 4, mark your place, and then Psalm 107 is where we're going to start off this morning. It is great to be here with you. I count it a a real privilege to be able to share uh, here, and I think it's really fun. Pastor Ted is teaching um, at Vista today, the church I have the privilege of pastoring, and um, so we kind of did a pastor swap, a pulpit swap, and um, I know that our folks are going to be blessed, and uh, just love your pastor and his wife. They are dear friends of us, of ours, my wife and I, and um, so it's really great to be here with you this morning. So let's pray, or let's actually read Psalm 107, verse 8. It says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Look at verse 9 again. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Praise you, Lord, that you are the one that does satisfy the longing soul and that you fill the hungry soul with goodness. And Lord, I think that most of us here in that room, we in this room have experienced you do just that. And we are so incredibly grateful. I pray this morning, though, that you would just... Open up our eyes, open up our understanding, perhaps to something that you would have us think about and consider in a fresh way as we move into this new year. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist declares here that it is the Lord, that he is the one who satisfies the longing soul. And I think all of us here who are believers, we know and we understand that that's exactly true. And that's what happened to us when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ. That, that we experienced him satisfying and filling that hunger that was in our hearts. But here's what's interesting that, that I find is I, I look all around us in the culture in which we live. And, and I see people all around us who are not satisfied at all. A lot of people who are very discontent with life, even in the church, even those who aren't believers that find themselves just struggling with this sense of of discontentment in their hearts, or they find themselves that there's just this longing that they have for something more, or something else, or something better. And I think if we're honest, all of us here can admit that we can battle with that time to time, that for we're cruising along and everything seems great, but all of a sudden there just is this, this sense of longing, this sense of discontentment in our hearts. Now, the consumer-minded society that we live in definitely plays into that, but it, it's not the only reason. Let me give you an example of maybe something that has happened to me recently. Maybe you've experienced something like this. I have an iPhone 5S, and I like my iPhone 5S. I think it's a lot better than the iPhone 4, which I had before, and, 
And, uh, you know, I like the size. I like it's sleek. I like all the features. And when the iPhone 6 was coming out, I was like, I don't, I don't need one of those. I don't want one of those. I'm totally happy and content with my iPhone 5. Until... Some people I work with got iPhone 6s. And suddenly they're breaking it out and they're going, check this out. And they want to show me some video. And I'm going, God, that screen's so much better than the one I have, you know. And I'm the guy who years ago when the cell phones were coming out, I said, I will never get one of those. That's the last thing that I need. And suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm like, I just des- I need one of those iPhone 6s. And uh, I have a whole other year on my contract, so I have to wait. And next, it'll be the 7s that are coming out, and they'll probably look like iPads that we put up to our ears, you know. Um, but we do. We find ourselves battling with, with things like that. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've said something like this recently where you said, you know, my job would be better if. Or my marriage would be better if. Or my kids are great, but. And you see, there are so many things in our lives where we can have this sense of, of wanting something more and something else and something better. And, and please just set your hearts at ease. My purpose today is not to talk about how ungrateful we are as people in our society, especially right after Christmas where we just opened up all these. It's not even to talk about and deal with consumerism at all because what I want to talk about, it goes beyond this. It's that, that sense and that idea of how you can be just so content in the Lord and going through life and then all of a sudden you just find yourself one day going, feeling this stirring inside of you. And I think we deal with this stirring. I think it's normal, somewhat normal, because I believe the Lord has placed within our hearts a built-in longing for three distinct things. There are three things that are inside of us that, that are always happening and going on. And they're there because of the very presence of God's Holy Spirit living in the heart of the believer And these three things that we're longing for, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down, is we're longing for intimacy with God. There's a built-in longing for intimacy with God. There's a built-in longing for heaven. And there's a built-in longing within us to have an eternal purpose. And if we understand that this is what we're really longing for and how those longings are satisfied, it'll help us better understand and navigate through these feelings of discontentment that can just come out of nowhere. But before we look at that, before we begin to break that down, I want to start this morning by talking about three enemies of contentment that we can all find ourselves dealing with. So if you're taking notes, number one, enemy number one is unfair comparisons. Unfair comparisons. I'll give you an example. My wife and I, we've been married 28 years this past July. She is the love of my life. She's my best friend. And when we got married 28 years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church, and I was being paid $700 a month, okay? So it was a struggle. Our rent, our rent was $450. I was paid $700. And uh, so it was kind of tough, and we kind of scrimped by. And so there we are. We're getting ready to go on our honeymoon, and my dear wife looks at me, and she says, Honey, do you think we can go out to dinner somewhere nice 
once on our honeymoon? And I said, sure, absolutely. And then I asked her, what's your idea of nice? And she said, you know, the sizzler, something like that. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. I married the right girl. Okay, so that was 28 years ago. Well, about five years ago, a couple in our church, they gave us for Christmas gift cards to Ruth Chris. How many of you have been to Ruth Chris before? Okay, those of you who haven't, you have to try it at least once. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing steak. Okay, they cook it in butter. It melts in your mouth. It's super expensive. You pay for everything there. You pay for the potato, the salad. You pay for the water. I mean, you pay for everything. But it's worth it to do once. And we went to Ruth Chris, and we had this steak, and it just melted in our mouth. We did it again recently when we were on our anniversary. We don't do it very often, but it was incredible. Well, now when it's like, hey, I want a really, really good steak, Sizzler just doesn't cut it, okay? It's an unfair comparison, okay? It just doesn't measure up at all to the steaks there at Ruth Chris. Have you ever had this happen to you? You're going to someone's house. Somebody in the church invites you over and you show up at their house and they live in a little bit better you know, neighborhood than you do and you go walking into their house and it is just spectacular and you find yourself, ladies, you're like, I want this kitchen. You know, inside of you, it's like you were happy with your kitchen until you saw that kitchen, right? And suddenly you're like, oh, you, I want that kitchen. And out of nowhere, suddenly you're dealing with these feelings of, of discontentment. This happens to young couples all the time. You know, oftentimes in a church, and you should do this, the older, or I'll put it this way, the mature couples in the church will invite the young married couples over, and you should do that. I think that's an awesome thing for the older, mature couples to do in a body of believers. And so here's this young couple, and they're just starting out, and they're just struggling. They've been married a, a year or, or two, and, and, and like so many of us, I mean, we started this way, I mean, nothing in their house matches, you know? Couches are all different. One's plaid and one's polka dot. And how many of you started off that way? Okay, I, I did. And it was good for us to start off that way. It was good to have that struggle. But here's the young couple. They walk into the house of the couple that's been married for 30 years and their house is immaculate and everything matches. And they're like, I want this. And sometimes a young couple will do this. They'll go out, they'll take the little charge card and they'll go out and buy a whole bunch of furniture, and suddenly now they've got this burden, this financial burden and stress. And it all started with them comparing themselves with this couple that's been married for 30 years. He's a lot further along in his job, a lot further along in life. And for them to compare and say, that's what we need to look like, it's an unfair comparison. So those are things that, that, that can happen where we can find ourselves in that place. And it's interesting, in Numbers chapter 34, Moses, when he's assigning the area, the territory for the children of Israel, and he's laying out the different places where they're going to go and, and each tribe is going to go and set up their camp and lodge and build their community, he lays it out and he says to them, now he lays their borders out, and he says, now don't go beyond your borders, And he gives the idea that if they were to go and try to settle beyond their borders, that they would be stretched beyond measure. And that's what can happen to us. 
When we try to fit into somebody else's mold or we try to fit into somebody else's life, when the idea is God has planted each one of us in the job, in the neighborhood, in the place where he has us right now, and his heart for us is he wants us to bloom where he has planted us. But that whole idea of unfair comparisons can get us moving in a direction where suddenly we're stretched beyond measure. Enemy number two is unnoticed blessings. Unnoticed blessings, where it's just easy for us to take for granted what we do have. You know, another example. I have three kids. They're all adults now. My my middle daughter, her name is Amy. And when Amy was small, four or five years old, she had this beautiful curly hair. I mean, just gorgeous. And everywhere we went, people commented about her hair. We would be in restaurants, and people would be pointing across the restaurant, and we knew what they were saying. Look at that little girl's hair. They would walk up to our table, and they'd say, we just have to ask, excuse us, is it real or is it a perm? Like, we're going to perm a four-year-old's hair, right? And my daughter got so used to hearing, you know, these compliments about her hair that she sort of grew indifferent to it, where she just found herself just going like, oh, man, if I hear this one more time. And so one day, she's with me, we're at the grocery store, she's sitting in the cart, the guy's ringing up our groceries, and suddenly he looks at her and just stops, he goes, this little girl, he goes, you have beautiful hair. And she just sat there, like didn't say a word, didn't acknowledge him, she's being rude, to be honest. And I looked at her, I said, Amy, what do you say to the man? She looked at him with a straight face and she said, thank you. You have nice hair too. The man was completely bald. (laughs) Didn't have a hair on his head. But here she is, you know, she's saying the right thing, but her heart really wasn't into it. And you know, that can happen to us, can't it? In fact, we can come into a setting like this where there's amazing worship happening and we kind of stand here, our hands in our pocket. I wasn't looking at anybody today, but you know, hands in our pocket or our arms are crossed and we're kind of like, I wish, you know, can't wait for the music to get over. And we're, we're failing to realize this incredible blessing that we have to worship God and that God actually enjoys. He's blessed by the fact that we want to sing to him. And, and I can't sing. I mean, no one wants to hear me sing, but God does. And somehow there's like this filter, I think, by the time it gets to heaven. that. But he's looking at the heart. And we're, we have all these amazing blessings that are around us in this culture that we live in. And any of you who have ever been to a third world country, you know that we are blessed here in America. You are blessed as a church. To have a body of believers like this that God has brought together. To have a pastor like Ted who is so faithful to share the word. But so often we can start to just lose sight of the blessings that are around us. In fact, it makes me think of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? John's in prison. And a couple of his disciples come to visit him. And John says, hey, I want you guys to go and find Jesus. And I want you to ask him if he's the one or should we look for another. Now think about that for a minute. This is John who stood in the Jordan River and said, there's one coming after me and I'm not worthy to loose his sandals. This is John who, when Jesus did come into the Jordan River, he said, I should not be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. This is John who, when Jesus walked in, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But all of a sudden, now John, that same guy is saying, hey, go find Jesus and ask him if he's the Messiah or should we keep looking? Why? Why did John get, go there? Well, the reason is because John's in prison. 
And he's thinking, if you're really the Messiah, Jesus, why am I still here in prison? And maybe you're dealing with that today. Maybe you find yourself in a place, a prison of sort. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your lack of a job. Maybe it's a difficult trial. And you find yourself in this place where you're thinking to yourself, if, Lord, if you really love me, if I really belong to you, why am I in this situation? Well, we can learn something from John. Because here's what happens. The disciples come of John come to Jesus and they say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus, John sent us, and I think they wanted to make sure like they weren't asking this question. Uh, we just want you to know, John wanted us to ask this. And John wanted us to ask, are you the one or should we keep on looking? And I love the Lord's response because the Lord looks at them and he says, go back and tell John the things that you have heard and the things that you have seen. That the lame walk, that the blind see, that the dead are raised. In other words, Jesus was saying, go back and tell John to not focus on what I'm not doing, but to focus on what I am doing. And that's such a good word for all of us. Because it's so easy to get into that place where we start focusing on what God isn't doing that we miss what he is doing. And so that's an enemy of contentment is unnoticed blessing. And then finally, number three is an unrealistic ideal. An unrealistic ideal. You see, oftentimes in the Christian world, we're led to believe that, that God's blessing means I have no problems. And so you'll meet somebody, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, health is good, family's good, doing great in my job, I'm blessed. But is that really the definition of God's blessing? A life that is free from difficulty? Some people believe that, but that's an American myth. And we have some of those in the church, like, like this one, American myth, God helps those who help themselves. Do you know that that's not in the Bible? But a lot of Americans believe that it is. In fact, the Bible actually teaches us that God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the message of the Bible. Here's another American myth. God will not give me more than I can handle. You know, God is always giving us more than we can handle. I mean, that's sort of the Christian life, is that he's always, that's how he moves us from being self-dependent people to being God-dependent people. I mean, think about it. Can anyone say the Red Sea? I mean, that was more than Moses and the children of Israel could handle. They are, they, they're out of Egypt, but they're stuck. The Red Sea's in front of them. Pharaoh and his army are barreling down upon them. Can anyone say Joshua and Jericho? That was more than they could handle. Can anyone say Gideon and his 300 men against 185,000 Midianites? That was more than they could handle. And God is always moving us into this place where, where he, he puts on our plate more than we we can handle because he wants us to be dependent upon him. And there is this myth today that a blessed life is a life that is free from difficulty. So many of God's most blessed saints went through incredible times of difficulty. David was a fugitive for 15 years after being anointed as king, chased around the countryside by a crazy king named Saul. Joseph, who God used in a mighty way, was in prison and in slavery for 13 years. You think about the Apostle Paul, and you look at his life, and everything that he went through, he writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's imprisoned. 
He says, the more I love, the less I'm loved in return. I mean, he went through so much difficulty. And yet, all of these men, they went through more than they could handle. They went through struggles that, that were far beyond them, but in them they learned to depend upon God and they learned and experienced the sufficiency of God's grace. So those are three common enemies of contentment. Now let's move to talk about what are these three built-in longings that God has placed in our hearts. So I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, and we'll look at the first one. Galatians chapter 4. And it's here that we learn, and again, just a reminder that these three built-in longings are there in our hearts because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. And so Galatians chapter 4, we see the first one, that we are longing for intimacy with God. Look at verse 4, or verse 6. And because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Here in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing here in chapter 4 about how we've been taken out of being slaves to sin, being in bondage to sin. Our status, our position was one of slavery, but now we're sons, now we're daughters, and God has done that. And he says that he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of our hearts, and the thing that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of our hearts, and I want you to think about this, how amazing it is to think about the fact that of all the places in the universe for the Spirit of God to dwell, he has chosen to dwell in the hearts of believers in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And what is he doing in our hearts? Well, one of the things that he's doing that Paul tells us here is he's in our heart and he's crying out constantly, Abba, Father. And you guys know that term Abba, it means daddy. It was a term that was used in the Hebrew culture. It was the most intimate expression that a child would have for their dad. And it was only one that they would use when they were out in, in, or excuse me, in the privacy of their own home. When they were out in public, everything was more formal. It was, it was sir, it was yes sir, it was father. But when that little guy or gal was at home and they would climb up on his lap and throw their arms around him, it was Abba. It was Daddy. And Paul says this. God's Spirit is in you. And this is what he's constantly doing. Is he's crying out, Abba, Father. In other words, because of God's Spirit crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father, each one of us has this built-in longing in our hearts for intimacy with God. It's one of the reasons why you get up in the morning and you think to yourself, you know what, I, I should get into the Word. It's not just because you've heard your, your pastor or your home Bible study leaders say that over and over again. It's because God's Spirit is in you and He's doing something and He's drawing you in that direction. Spend an intimate time with God. It's interesting to think about. Not only is God's spirit moving us, he's creating this longing in us, crying out constantly, Abba, Father, but it's also something that the Lord desires for us and from us. That he desires intimacy with us. That he loves it when we set aside time to sit in his presence. It's interesting in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it talks about when Jesus called his disciples. And I just love the way it puts this. It says that he called them to himself. 
He called them to himself. It doesn't say he called them to go change the world. It doesn't say he called them to go preach the gospel. It doesn't say he called to send them on a mission, although all of that was true. But it says that Jesus, at the very beginning, he just called these guys to himself. That more than wanting to do something through their life, he wanted to do something in their life. And he wanted them to know him. And that, the same thing is true of you and I. God wants us to know him. You know, the Apostle Paul, he understood this. He writes in the book of Philippians. And what's so interesting to me about what he writes in Philippians is Paul, when he writes the book of Philippians, he has been a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, for 30 years. Most of his ministry has been complete at this point, And yet he writes there in Philippians chapter 3 that I might, he goes, I said, I lay aside all things. I've laid aside all things. I continue to lay aside all things for this purpose. Everything that I was prior to coming to Christ, I've laid that aside. I counted as rubbish for this purpose that I might know him. That I might know Jesus. And he uses the word gnosko in the Greek, which means to know him in an intimate, personal way. Paul, in other words, is saying, this is my passion, this is my pursuit, is I want to know Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Any, how many of you here have walked with the Lord for 30 years? Any? Some of you. That's awesome. Now think about this, okay? 30 years in, and Paul's saying, I've laid aside everything, I, I continue to lay aside everything, that I might know him. And I think some of us would say, Paul, come on, you're the great apostle. You've planted all these churches. God has used you in so many amazing ways. I mean, don't you know him by now? And I think Paul would answer and he would say, yes, but there's so much of him to know. There's so much of Jesus to know. And Paul said, my passion, my pursuit, it's about knowing him. To Paul, Jesus was like a treasure chest that he kept pulling out one new jewel after another. The Lord gave me a very vivid picture, I think, of this. Several years ago, I was down at the beach one morning, and I was having devotions. I'm sitting there just having some coffee and, and you know, spending some time with the Lord. And I saw something that I've never seen before. I've lived in California my, my whole life, and I'd never really seen this particular thing take place. And what, what it was is there was a group of pelicans that were flying above the water, like about 50 yards right out in front of me. And suddenly, they just start dive bombing, you know, down into the water. I mean, it's reckless abandonment. They're just coming down and crashing into the water. And I'm like, looking, what are they doing? I mean, I'd never seen this before. Crashing into the water and then coming up. And each time they came up, they had a fish in their mouth. And I was just mesmerized. And then the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, Rob, that's the way that I want you to pursue me with that same type of reckless abandonment. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always do that. I get distracted. I can get lazy. But I'll tell you this, when I do, when I am pursuing him in that way, I am the most blessed. I am the most satisfied. So the first thing we need to understand is God has placed within us this built-in longing for intimacy with him. And, and the more that we pursue him, the more that, that we're seeking to get closer, the more satisfied that we find ourselves becoming. Longing number two, though. 
God has also placed within us a longing for heaven. Turn just a couple pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit, note that, as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And here Paul is building this analogy on how this body is like a tent. And that, that when this body comes to the place where it can no longer function and it ceases you know, to be able to express who I am and, and it dies, that we go to heaven where we're given this new body. And Paul says we're groaning. There's this longing inside of us, this groaning to be further clothed by the habitation which is from heaven. And here's what Paul says. He says, and God, just so you know that he's serious about this is your destiny, that you're serious about that this world is not your home and that heaven is your home, that it's what's ahead, it's your destiny, it's what's ahead of you. He says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And you guys know that word guarantee. In our culture, it speaks of a a down payment. That's what it spoke of in that culture. You're serious about, you know, you want to buy a car and you say, okay, you know, I'm going to give you a down payment and just this is a guarantee that I'm coming back. So don't sell this. I'll be back tomorrow with the rest. Here's my $500 down payment. Here's my $1,000 down payment. But in that culture, that word guarantee, it also was used to describe an engagement ring. When a young girl would, or a young guy would, you know, find the girl of his dreams, that he would go out, he would get her an engagement ring. It was a guarantee that, look, I want you to be my wife. And just so you know that I'm serious about this, I'm going to give you this ring to wear on your finger. And we do that in our culture as well. Well, I want us to think for a moment about that picture, the engagement ring. But I want us to think about it from the standpoint of we're the girl. We're the bride. Because that's the picture. God's saying, look, I'm the groom, and I'm going to marry you. You're my bride. And just so you know, I'm serious. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. He's the engagement ring. Now, when a young girl has an engagement ring on her finger, and she wears it, she wears it proudly, you know, she likes to put her hand out so you can see it. What is, she, what is she saying? She's saying, she's signaling, she's making a statement, I'm taken. But you know, that ring also begins to symbolize the longing that's in her heart, especially if the, the guy that she's engaged to 
is away from her. He's, he's, a dis, he's out at college, or maybe he's in the military, and he's off on deployment. And so that ring becomes a symbol of the longing in her heart. She's at the park, and she sees a couple pushing their stroller, and they're walking along, and, and she sees you know, their rings, and they're married, and she looks down at her ring, and she thinks to herself, that's going to be me one day. We used to live in Oregon, and Oregon, it could get cold in the wintertime. I mean, way colder than today, and almost everybody would sleep with electric blankets in Oregon. So here's this young girl in Oregon, and she gets in bed, and she pulls up that electric blanket, and she looks at that ring, and she thinks to herself, you know, I'm not going to need this electric blanket pretty soon. There's going to be a warm body in this bed next to me. And it becomes a symbol of the longing that that is inside of us. And I think that that is what Paul is saying here. God has given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we groan and we find ourselves going through life and we watch the news and go, oh, I like this place. And the Lord is like, you know what? That's normal. That's natural. You see, I'm doing something in your heart. And I'm wanting you to understand and realize this world isn't, my, isn't your home. The Bible says that we are pilgrims and sojourners here. And God is saying, this world isn't your home. I've got a better place for you. I have a greater destiny for you. And so his spirit inside of our hearts is, is building within us this, this longing for heaven. You know, the world around us lives for temporal pleasure. God wants us as believers to live with eternity in view. He wants us to live with the eternal over the temporal. He wants us to understand that it's eternity that matters. In fact, Solomon said something so amazing in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 11, when he said this, that God has put eternity into our hearts. That God has put eternity into into the hearts of every single human being, not just believers, but every single man is this sense that there's something beyond this life, that there's gotta be more to life than this. And they realize that, and there's that sense inside of them. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, your life, it looks like this cycle of going from one experience and one thing, maybe one person to to another. And all of that is an attempt, and we've all been there, to fill this void inside of your heart. But it's a void that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And you were made to live in relationship with God. You were made by God to live in an intimate and close relationship with him. You and I, we were made for heaven. I love what Hebrews chapter 3 declares. It says concerning you and I as believers that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. And I love that verse because it kind of gives the intimate that heaven is calling us. And I believe the Holy Spirit often is trying to remind us of that in our hearts. Hey, this world, Rob, it's not your home. You have a greater destiny. So within our hearts is this built-in longing for heaven. God wants us to live with eternity in view. In fact, think about this for a moment. You know, I believe that we could very well be, in fact, I believe this with all my heart, and I think most of you do as well, is that we're living in the last days. I think we are so close to the coming again of our Lord for his church 
And if that is true, just think about this. That means that God has decided that you and I, that we would be the last generation of Christians living on planet Earth before he comes. Now, I don't know about you, but that excites me because that means God is saying, look, the last group of believers that I want living on the earth before my son comes for his church is going to be you guys. The last group of believers that I want you know, living in this area of the Temecula Valley, it's, it's you guys. It's here at Reliance and the other believers that are around you and the other churches around you. That, that's exciting to me to think that God would say, you're the ones I want doing my work. And that leads to my third and final point, that God has placed within us a built-in longing to have an eternal purpose. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're all familiar with this verse. The word workmanship, in the Greek, it's poema. We get our English word poem from it. But it's a word that speaks of much more than poetry. The word workmanship actually means masterpiece, and it spoke of any type of form of art. It could be a song. It could be a painting. It could be a sculpture. That it was a masterpiece that they would refer to. it. Anything that was just that amazing that they would use this term, poema. Oh, that's a poema. That's a, a masterpiece. And this is the term that God uses in describing us. That we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Now, I doubt any of you got up this morning and looked in the mirror and said, I'm a masterpiece. I don't know. Maybe some of you did do that. But... Uh, But you know, when he uses that term, you need to understand, he's not talking about the fact that the Bible says we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. He's not talking about human anatomy when he uses that term. He's not talking about our physical appearance at all, even though, you know, the the human body is an amazing creation, but that's not what he's talking about when he uses this term. In fact, look at it again closely. He says that we are his workmanship created in Christ. You see, that's the key phrase. And what that means is the thing that makes us his workmanship is redemption. The fact that you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the thing that makes you God's masterpiece. It's the fact that when you gave your heart to Christ, two amazing things happened. The first was that God came to live in your heart by his Holy Spirit. But the second thing was is that you were placed in Christ. And God now sees you, he views you through his son as redeemed, as holy, as righteous, forgiven. And that's what makes you and I God's masterpiece. It's what Christ did for us. It's who we are in Jesus, which is why I think believers are God's greatest creation. Because we're the only thing that God has made that he uses that term. He doesn't use it when he makes the universe. Oh, the heavens do declare the glory of God, but he doesn't use that term, oh, they're my masterpiece. He only uses that for us. Why? Well, to to create the world, God spoke the world into existence in six days. 
He just said, let there be light and let there be land and let there be animals and let there be oceans and fish and let there be man. It was a piece of cake. But to make a Christian, to make you and I his masterpiece, Jesus had to leave heaven and come to this earth to become one of us. The very thing that we just celebrated here at Christmas time, that Jesus left heaven to come into a womb. And then he stepped out of that womb and into our world that he might step from our world and onto a cross where he would pay the price for our sins so that we could know God. That's what it took to make a Christian. So think of it this way. We're all together and we're going on this museum tour and the title of it is God's Masterpiece. And we enter the first room and and it's the galaxies and the stars and we see all the incredible things if you've ever studied that. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling and you see all that and we think, oh, surely this is God's Masterpiece and the person leading the tour says, nope, this isn't it. And then we go and we see all these exotic animals that God has made. And we see things we've never ex- ever seen before. And we're thinking, surely this is God's masterpiece. Nope, this isn't it. And we go to some of the most amazing places here in the world where it's just gorgeous and just camera photo session after another. And, 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 he, and we're thinking, surely this is God's masterpiece. Nope, this isn't it. And then we are taken underwater and we see all the beautiful sea life and all these different colored fish and we're thinking, surely this is it. This is God's masterpiece. Nope, this isn't it. And we go from one thing to another to another and then finally we come to the final room and it's there the tour guide says, okay, now brace yourselves. This is it. This is his masterpiece. And we step into the room and what do we see? We see Jesus on a cross and we see in the distance an empty tomb. And we see ourselves at the foot of that cross. And they're written on our backs as we're kneeling down, forgiven. And the tour guide says, this is his masterpiece. That's what Paul's saying here. You and I created in Christ Jesus, his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. Now here's what's interesting. How many of you here are artists? Any artists in the, in the crowd here? A few of you? Okay. You know, the art, art is usually the expression of the artist. You know, you take an artist and, and maybe they, all their paintings are just dark, just kind of eerie. And then you meet them and you understand why. Because <laughs> they're kind of like that, you know? Or somebody writes songs and their girlfriend breaks up with them. So it's a sad song, you know, achy, breaky heart or something, you know. If they're happy, it's a happy song. Art is often the expression of the artist. And I think that also is carried in this idea when when Paul says, you are my workmanship. You are, God's saying, you are my work of art. What he's saying is that you And I, we get to be an expression of God to the world around us. That we get to be an expression of God to our sphere of influence. How? How is God, the artist, wanting to express himself through us? Well, notice what Paul says. Created for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. 
In other words, God has something for each of us on a daily basis. Somebody, some translation puts it this way, crave for good works which he before, prepared beforehand that we should step into them. And like every single day, we have this opportunity to step into this work that God has created for us. And our fulfillment comes from being engaged in that work that God has prepared us for. Again, Paul the Apostle, I think, understood this because he makes this phrase again there in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, you know, this is what my life is about. I'm, I'm seeking to know him and I'm seeking to discover the reason why he apprehended me. Think about that. It's a great picture of what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, huh? Jesus came and apprehended him. You've been apprehended by Jesus. And Paul says, my life is about dis- discovering the reason why. Why did he apprehend me? And for Paul, it was an ongoing revelation. Every new city that he came to, every new group that he got to share the gospel with, every new person that he got to pray for, it was the un- unraveling or the revealing of why Jesus had apprehended him. And the same thing is true for you and I. We've been apprehended by the Lord for a purpose. And we exist for an eternal purpose. We exist all of us here as believers we exist on this earth to be a part of God's mission we all have a sphere of influence like can you just say that with me I don't know if you do this here but just say sphere of influence okay all of you this time say I have a sphere of influence you know what you do Starts with the house that you live in and the people that live there with you, your family, your roommates. It extends to the place where you work and the people that you work with. They're, they're your sphere of influence. God's placed you there. It moves to maybe some of you that are in school, you're in college, and, and, and it's, that's your sphere of influence. Each one of those classrooms and the people that God has placed around you. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the term, we're his ambassadors, And so God the artist is constantly wanting to express his heart through our lives. That God invites us to play a part in his plan of redemption. And I believe the Holy Spirit is seeking to create within us a burden for lost souls. That we have this stirring in our hearts. This longing that he wants us to realize you're you're here for a much bigger reason than just existing and making it from Sunday to Saturday every single week. But you're here because I want to do something in your life. It's interesting in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said this to his disciples, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Now, think about this. Jesus says, hey, guys, I want you to pray. The harvest is great, but we need more labors, so pray. The very next thing it says there in Luke chapter 10 is he sent them out. In other words, Jesus says, pray, okay, amen, okay, great. Your prayer just got answered. I'm sending you. And that's what he does with us. He sends us out into a world Have you ever thought about why doesn't Jesus 
The minute we get saved, rapture us. Why doesn't he do the Enoch thing with all of us, you know? Okay, prayer, boom, we're out of here. It's because he wants us to be an expression of who he is to the world around us. And when I realize that this is something the Spirit of God is doing in my heart, I start to view everything in my life differently. My neighborhood becomes my mission field. The place where I work is not just a place to earn a paycheck, but it becomes a place where I have an opportunity to build relationships with people around me for the purpose that one day I might be able to share Jesus with them. The, the school that I go to is not just a place where I'm seeking to get a degree, but it becomes a place that God has put me in a sphere of influence where around people that need to know him. The softball team that I play on is not just the place where I go to have some fun and, and recreation. That's awesome. That's amazing. But it's also a place where God has put me around some people to, where I can build relationships with them and grow and maybe one day get the opportunity to tell them about my Savior. And I try to pray pray each and every day. And I want to encourage you, as we move into this new year, to pray in this way. Lord, help me be open to what your spirit is doing in my life. And help me to see the world around me the way that you do, with your eyes and your heart. You begin to pray that and watch and see what he does. Watch and see what he does. You and I have this amazing privilege of partnering with the living God in his mission here on the earth. And I'll close with this. Imagine for a moment what would happen if everyone in this church began to pray in that way and was used by the Lord to lead one person to Christ in the year 2015. Imagine what would that be what that would be like. Imagine what it would be like if all of a sudden this body of believers was filled with hundreds and hundreds of brand new Christians in this coming year. I mean, that would be amazing and I think it's possible. I believe that it's possible if we truly began to understand what God is doing and seeking to do in our lives on a daily basis is that, hey, I'm alive to be an expression of my king. I'm I'm alive to be an expression of the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. Oftentimes, that expression is seen the greatest in the difficulties. It's in the times when we're, we're going through the deep trial. We're walking through the deep darkness. Because, you know, that's when the world pays the most attention. You know, I love the fact. I love the fact that, you know, athletes that win the Super Bowl or the big award, I love the fact that they say, I just want to, first of all, you know, give thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that's awesome. But I don't think there's a lot of guys that are unbelievers that hear that and go, you know what? I think I want to become a Christian. That guy just won the Super Bowl. But when the guy gets cut, when the guy blows out his knee, when the guy gets laid off from his job, when the marriage blows up and it's just really difficult, that's when the world looks and pays attention and says, okay, let's see what their God does now. And that's that moment, that opportunity that we have to be this amazing expression of the faithfulness of God.
So as we move into this new year, I pray, as you are going through life and you find yourself, you know, a week from now or a couple weeks from now, one day just wrestling with, why am I so uptight? Why do I feel discontent? Why am I, that you would remember God's Spirit's doing something in you. And you have this built-in longing, God's Spirit moving you, seeking to move you toward intimacy with Christ. God's Spirit seeking to remind you that this world isn't your home, but you have been made for heaven. And God's Spirit just working in your heart to move you in a place to remind you that you exist here as a believer to have an eternal purpose.